this series. Um, and again, it's, um, we move to a new subject today, and so um, some people may be relieved. <laughs> um, but you might find that it's like out of the fire, frying pan, in it, into the fire. There is still so much more that we can learn in this situation. And I, I just want to do a short introduction before I read the text today. And, um, and just by way of kind of toning us up or preparing us for um, our subject today, you know, I want to put this out there. What would you say to the person who is just about to tell their four-year-old the truth about Christmas? Blow the lid on Santa Claus and the origin of their Christmas presents. Or what would you say to the person who wants, who wants to sit down with your five-year-old and spill the beans on the stalk and how mummy really got her baby? Such a person might defend themselves and, uh, by stating that they are being honest enough to have a conversation. They may even go as far as to say they are respecting them by doing such a thing. But could they say that their love is their motivation for doing it? What would you do in such a situation if you had to choose between having an honest and frank conversation with someone that would rip their worldview apart or lovingly sparing them their naivety in the hope of seeing if they will grow up over time? Does knowledge conquer love or does love conquer knowledge? Proverbs 11.30 says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. So today we're going to be looking at how to win souls, but even more importantly, how to be a healthy community. So if you've got your Bibles handy, and I hope you have, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. We should be dealing with the whole chapter today, and so um, please, read in my please um, listen in my hearing, and I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. So now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, 
Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as though really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have, sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful today, dear Lord God, that we are, uh, again, in a, in a climate, dear Lord God, where hopefully we are feeling some of the ease and um, the, the tension, dear Lord God, of having been um, under strict, as it were, curfew to some extent, or a semi-strict curfew. And as we start to feel, dear Lord God, the release, dear Lord Father, um, and going back out, Lord, again, you know, we are going to be in places, dear Lord Father, where... This type of liberty, these types of rights are going to be put to the test. Lord, as we move into the world, dear Lord Father, um, in a cautionary world, dear Lord Father, how are we going to interact with one another? How are we going to respect each other's space, um, as it were? Not knowing whether or how vulnerable the other person is, dear Lord Father. So there is so much, so much here, dear Lord, for us to take consideration because, again, it's a word seemingly in season. So, Father, as we consider these things, as we consider our neighbor, dear Lord Father, speak to our hearts, Lord Father. I know that I have things written down here, dear Lord, and things on my heart and a degree of knowledge of the text. But, Father, ultimately, I want to pray that, Lord, your spirit does a work in us today and teaches us that principle that underlines everything that Paul has just stated that we may learn to love one another, not, not in a mechanical sense, but Lord God, but in a, with a degree of sensitivity, dear Lord Father, that truly will allow us to be lights in the world. Father, we want our community to be strong. And so, Lord, I really want our church, dear Lord Father, to, t to listen to what has been spoken today and has been spoken and will be spoken so that, Father, when we have got the ability to come back together, to be in one another's presence, dear Lord Father, we will be the better for it. Not just, as it were, with knowledge, dear Lord God, as we said, that just puffs up. But, Father, with, a, with, with knowledge that is informed by love. And that will allow us, dear Lord God, to interact with one another in a way that will be healthy. So, Father, we thank you for these words and help us, Lord, as we go through them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> My title for today is Knowledge Versus Love. Knowledge Versus Love. I don't normally have titles, but you know what? This one actually popped out, and so I said, let me use this. 
But before we kind of dig in again, as, as way of, I guess, further introduction, um, the background material to the historical and cultural context is very important to unpacking this text. So I don't want us to jump in there thinking that, well, I know the world in which they exist because it's very much like our world, because it isn't. Obviously, there are huge amounts of similarities because human beings are human beings. But to think that the temple and all the, that, we, that existed in Corinth is, is pretty much the same as what we have now, um, we will need to do a bit of work. We need to do some recontextualizing to kind of understand their world and how it compares to ours. So the temple was the place that many in the ancient world would go to celebrate not just religious festivals, but also special events like birthdays and coming of age and even business deals. So the temple was a hub in that sense where people in the pagan world, whether Greek and Romans or Middle Eastern, would all come and they would gather. And so in that sense, the temple was a, was a central place where people would have community. In some ways, the temple was the first version of what we know today as restaurants. However, it will not be helpful you to disconnect the religious service they perform in such a comparison, because, again, restaurants are obviously not religious places, even though people could eat religiously. Birthdays and coming-of-age ceremonies were, in fact, seen as events uh, a person would want to give God thanks for. Or even that great business deal, let's go and seal this with a meal at the temple. Something that may help you to understand um, how this recontextualizes into our modern world is in African churches, and I say that loosely, African churches, I see a considerable similarity in the ancient temple with thanksgiving services. So in African churches, you will see there that people will come and give thanks on birthdays, on special events, and food will be given out so that people may share in that thanksgiving. And that might give us a, a picture of how church was central to these celebrations, and the temple in these times was central to the celebrations. Even in ancient Israel, the temple was the place where families will go in order to eat special meals together. If you want to see a great um, picture of what that looked like, um, I would recommend 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 9. And there you see um, Hannah with her family eating a meal. So when you understand the significant role the temple played in the ancient society, you then appreciate the huge hole you will have in your social life if you could not take part in it. I believe it would be fair to say that you would miss out on major events in your family and community as well as good business opportunities. This, not, this would not be easy to do if you wanted to keep your family on board with your new found religion or faith. You can hear them saying, what do you mean you're not coming to Jason's birthday party? This starts to give you the idea where the compromise for those who continue to eat in the temple was coming from. 
there was a huge pressure to, to, to kind of make an accommodation to say, how can I still take part in these things so that I don't miss out? How am I going to see my business thrive if I can't seal the deal down at the temple? So the compromise is seeping in because there is a deal, there is a desire to want to partake. Those who continue to eat at the temple, so those who are continuing to eat at the temple are coming from a place where they want that accommodation. This should start to give you some appreciation of what Paul is actually asking them to do for the sake of their fellow brother. Choosing to love your Christian family over and against your biological family, friends, and work colleagues is not easy to comprehend. But Jesus is noted for setting such a precedent. If we look in Matthew, he says this, uh, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Let me read um, in your hearing. It says, While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It is best to see this as a literal and not a metaphorical statement by Jesus. He saw these people as his family. However, choosing between family and church community needn't be an either-or decision. It needn't be, and very often it isn't. I want to deal with this in three sections because, again, it captures the whole thought and I want to make some comments on those sections. And I want to look at the first three verses and kind of break down Paul's argument here. So the first three verses, he, the now indicates the beginning of a new topic. So obviously we saw that with verse 7. So we, know, we now know that we're in a section of the letter where Paul, having addressed the issues that were on his heart, now begins to address the issues that are on their heart. So we saw that over the last three weeks, we're dealing with the issue of singleness and marriage, and remarriage. Now he's moved the subject on, and the now helps us to indicate that he's changing that subject. And the new topic is food eaten, or food eaten at, at pagan temples. From the outset, Paul pits the benefits of knowledge against the benefits of love. And so he states what's at stake. He puts literally what's at stake, knowledge and love. And we'll see that, obviously, if you, anyone who knows 1 Corinthians particularly well, we will see that the crescendo of this comes in chapter 13. And even then, he, he brings that all in to chapter 14. But the crescendo is that, that which we lose at weddings, but actually when we realize it, 
That's a chapter for the church and not just for two people who want to be married. That love that puffs up, that love that considers the other person. So what Paul then attacks is the underlying error that has caused the problem in which eating at a temple is a byproduct of and that, and that it's claims, and that is that claim to knowledge. You know, anyone who realizes that they speak to anybody who's had uh, some time in ministry, whenever you try to ask a question like, like a yes or a no, especially to a theologian, you realize you're going to get a yes and a no. Because in a sense, the situations are always complex. And so when you ask the question of, can I eat in a temple, just give me a yes or no, we cannot give you a yes or no answer. We have to address the principle and then allow you the grace to be able to apply that principle in such a way that you can grasp it. In other words, good ministers, good leaders don't give you fishes. They teach you how to fish. We want you to thrive. We want you to live. We want you to be able to take that and be able to say, well, now I understand the principle. How do I live this? The application is so important. Hmm. However, this knowledge is not real knowledge, but more like a cold fact that has no grasp of the dynamic of human interaction and perception. In other words, we can hold certain facts and we believe, well, I understand something, but really it's a cold fact. It's held outside of the real world. It's, as it were, we might say, an abstract understanding of something. And the problem is of, of this is that a fact in one person's mind doesn't necessarily translate to the same thing in another person's mind. I had a great example of this the other day as we were cleaning up the offices at work. Um, and I found an image that was there in some of the things. And I decided to keep it. I couldn't, I couldn't be bothered to throw it away. Where one person is saying to the other person in an office, it's like one of those cartoons that you normally get in the papers, saying to the person, um, the mouse... And the person, it has this image bubbles in the one person's mouth where you see a computer mouse. And then the person he's speaking to is visualizing a literal physical mouse, a biological mouse. And that kind of gave me that whole idea that as you transfer ideas, it's like words have different meanings and how true that is. It was a funny image, but it showed how we have to make hard at making sure that what we communicate does actually rest in the other person's mind, at least as close as possible as it is in the, other, the person who's telling its mind. It means we have to do hard work. So Paul makes it clear that knowledge counts for little, but being known by God and us being humbled in that knowledge is what really matters. Now, 
This is an important concept in human-to-human -human interaction, interaction, like what we get in Matthew 18. I'm going to be coming back to Matthew 18 because I think that unpacks this principle very well. And I'm particular about the man who was forgiven much. The servant who was forgiven much by a master that had considered and favored him should have allowed that kind of consideration he had received to inform his interaction with the fellow servant who owes him. And that's what Paul is at. That, that knowledge that you are known by God ought to inform how you used to act. The grace that you have received is actually to be transferred to other people. So that knowledge that the person owes you something should be informed by the fact that you are known by God. And that knowledge of God would humble you because you suddenly realize, hey, well, I was a sinner and God forgave me. This will be so important to understanding the whole idea of how do I hold to my rights? He owes me. In view of what Paul says is the underlying issue is that do you not know that being known by God and your relationship to God is the most important part of the knowledge you're supposed to have? And it should speak to all those other interactions as well. But let's carry on. And, and again, the next section that he deals with is, is in verse, verses 4 right down through to verse 6. And this is what I call the theology lesson. And so this is, this is the part where, in a sense, Paul affirms that their theology is actually pretty good. So it's not all bad news. It's not all doom and gloom. And he's like saying, yeah, he's, you know, on, you know on, on the level of theology, pretty good, pretty spot on. There is only one God. Yeah. I want to champion that. And I'm, I'm going to affirm the fact that, yeah, you are right. The doctrine is, co is correct. But holding the correct doctrine does not mean that we also hold the correct application. We can know a lot of facts. We can, we can go through our systematics and know what it means, but have no idea how that works in the real world. You know, in military, isn't it, they have this term that, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. You can sit there and think that, you know, I want, you know and uh, you see this in the, in the, especially in those old movies where they're moving soldiers around under the basis that, well, you know, I've got a huge amount of number of soldiers here and that should overwhelm them. I have no idea the spirit within those other soldiers to counterattack. They may not give up. What are you going to do then? They may have a surprise for you. And therein lies the, dish, the issue is that when you're dealing with people, situations become complex and never straightforward. Paul here may also be indicating himself in the problem. As he has been obviously seen doing what other people have been doing. And we know that Paul would, again, um, relax his own Jewish heritage in order to accommodate certain people. And to some extent, Paul, I, as, as one commentator puts it, I believe Gordon Fee has put it, 
that they may, in fact, feel Paul feels a sense of responsibility here. That they have done exactly what he has done, but not necessarily understanding the principle under which he did it. And to some extent, when you think about Paul going to Corinth as a place where no one had been before, the only way he could start the work was probably to meet people in these temples. And to, as it were, establish that. But once that community was built up, you don't necessarily fall back on what you did before. And sometimes, again, the whole idea of growing up and being a church is that the good old days, as I've I've stated before, you know, of, of when it was a young work, when it was fresh, you can't go back to that. There are things you do to get the work started and you can't go back to the good old days where everybody knew each other and everyone was in everyone's houses. Growing up means that things change. Growing up means that your children leave the house. So as for the theology lesson, yeah, great. A plus, you get a pass. But... You lose marks for application. And if you've looked at me and have not understood the reason why I've done those things, then Paul is saying, then let me continue on to explain. And he goes on for a number of chapters to explain how he does what he does and how they should do how he really does what he does. So looking at the last section now, verses 7 to 13, dealing with this as a chunk. Paul now applies the aversative, a hard aversative, in the however. So where you see that at the beginning of verse verse 7, the however, he is now wanting to correct a wrong perception of that theology. And that begins this next section of thought. Going back to what was previously stated, we can hold the fact that there is one God in different ways. For example, you might hold that, yes, Yahweh is the head God with other little gods underneath him who are not as powerful and are subject to him. And to a pagan, it's not hard to perceive how that might be. There is one God. Yeah, 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 I believe that. There's one boss. But there are many underbosses. And so that understanding of there being one God is sometimes hard to grasp, especially when you look at the pagan world. And even today in this pluralistic world, this whole idea of one God might mean very different things. Some might say, yes, you worship Allah. Yes, yes, yes. Same God, right? And how do you answer that? Will you take into consideration that person and what they might understand about there being one God and about there being actually different gods? Or even, as Paul will go, demons who guise themselves as gods. <coughs> Paul then attacks here what we, Paul then attacks this fact and examines it. 
even though it's a good biblical one, if it now means that we turn that knowledge into a right that makes us into tyrants, there needs to be a correction. And we can start to see the motivation for what Paul has, for Paul's powerful statement throughout this letter, what we, as we look back to chapter 6, where he states, I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. He will also state again in chapter 10, I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So Paul constantly looks at this whole idea of issues of rights. That I have a right to be able to, to do these things, don't I? It kind of makes me look at some of the situations of where I have fallen and have risen. I have had a number of subpar coffees, which I couldn't be bothered to complain about. And there are times when I've complained and felt like a bit of an idiot as I make someone else's life difficult because of my right to have it how I want it. And no doubt we have all seen that, haven't we? Am I going to be obtuse and demand that I get my food, my drink, my self-service the way that I want to the detriment of somebody else? So much to consider. Looking at application. There's a degree, of, a degree of dishonesty in the way that I've titled my sermon today. Knowledge and love are not natural enemies. And they need not be pitted against one another. There is no evil or in the matter. Knowledge can serve love. And love can inform knowledge. For those who see a similarity um, in this principle and with the current politically correct culture we have, we have in the West should note that this is only superficial. This is not a, 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 a great way to say, well, this is the reason why we shouldn't offend people. This is the way we should create a culture which, we could, which can accommodate so many different people um, at the expense of others. That's not what Paul is promoting here. Christianity does not encourage us to remain in naivety, but to come to to come to maturity. Let me clarify this because Paul states in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, his clear mandate for what the church ought to be. And as we read there, it says, And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We have a role to learn what it is we believe and what it is the church stands for. We have a right to not remain in immaturity. And why has he given these for the building of the body of Christ? Verse 13 in chapter 4 of Ephesians says this, until we attain to the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. In other words, Paul would like it that everybody would get to the stage where everybody knew that an idol was nothing other than a false god. And that actually there is only literally one god. And other things disguising themselves as gods. That's what Paul desires. to the mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then this is what he does here. He puts as the standard for when we are going to be in that full maturity as Christ himself. Until we are like him, that's when the work is finished. Not until we are like whatever great theologian that you follow nowadays or great Christian leader you follow today. The, the, the measure is Christ. Until we are like him. That's when the work is finished. So there is no reason for any of us to be resting on our laurels thinking that I know enough. And verse 14 he goes on, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. There's that theme. In love. We are to grow up. Again, our, our title for today, for our series, isn't it, in Corinthians. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. With each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He'll repeat this mandate again in 1 Corinthians 12, right? To see the church working together in unity. It's not that we should let, sit and accommodate silly ideas that exist in certain people's heads and, and think that, well, it's enough that, 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 you know, and pat them on the head and say, oh, you know, they, they know no better. But he, the responsibility is that in love, we want to see that person raised up to a point where they have a better understanding of what Christianity is. So this is not a replication of PC culture. This is actually, we want to have one view. I must return now to Matthew 18 in order that we may grasp the principle that Paul is teaching here. You know, it's relatively easy to teach someone the content of a fact or even a doctrine. You know, you can spout it out and obviously the catechisms, they, you know, we can spout out 
what those things are. But obviously, during the catechisms, we, we unpack what that means. And some people have just learnt it by rote. We're not really understanding what it actually means. What is much harder is to teach them to put the doctrine into an application that can adapt to the complexity of human society. In other words, how do I now take that and, and bring it into a world and respond to that doctrine in such a way that it becomes alive in me? Doctrines and facts that are perceived as static will not allow you to understand the principle that undergirds it. So if I just remember it as, as well, you know, there is only one God... As I said, in our mind, that one God could mean many different things. What we really need to do is get into grips with what undergirds that understanding. What lies beneath it? What's the principle? What's the foundation in which it stands on? So rather than having a set of cold, unconnected facts, we need a living faith and a relationship that informs those doctrines and plays them like the notes on a piano that you know when, when to bring the right thing in. So that there's a harmony, and you play the melody that helps that person to grow. And so it's not like we're going to just hit somebody with some hard notes just because we want to drown them out. We play the melody that will allow them to sing along with us and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. And so we get them at the key that they're speaking at. And if we hear them at an A, we go, and we speak to that A. So you understand A. Let me take you to B. Let me play a B for you. And that's what it is. It's, it's playing, it's capturing them where they're at, and then moving them along. And playing our doctrines and our beliefs in harmony. What we have here is something countercultural to what we currently live in in the West. The sensitivity of persons in the West which demands rights, even legitimate ones, at the expense of another. And there are many examples for this, that in order to, for people to kind of live together, there are lots of injustices that have actually happened. And that people's rights, some people's rights have been cut off in order to grant other people's rights. And this ought not to be so. But when you live in a democracy, what, best, what, what other option do you have? What we have in Matthew 18 is a man who owes, but is also owed. His knowledge of being in debt should have informed his right to be paid. We are in a world where everybody owes everybody, even on a national level. No one is, as it were, stands on their own two feet. How we treat others, like we see in Matthew 18, may also inform how we might be treated ourselves. And so it is that the person who is held to his right to perceive the gods of the pagan temple as nothing. So that person who, who, who has taken it upon himself in our text today to eat at the temple and 
and perceive them as nothing, again, because he doesn't want to live without, outside of his community. You should also remember that he did not always believe this. There was a time where he probably would have struggled with that as well. It is in remembering who he was that will inform him how to live graciously with someone who also needs time to understand and grow up. How do I do that? How do I live this in such a way so that I allow for other people to come? How do I put my business and my family in jeopardy in such a way that I actually prefer my brother? Like walking with a child, we need to walk at a pace that will not leave them unguarded. And that's what it is. It's not about allowing the weak to dominate the ideas of the church. It's about how the strong, how those who know better, endure so that we can teach and see people grow up and take time with them. So it is that we don't want people to be unguarded, but we want to love them and bring them to the full knowledge of the truth, even as Paul says, even to the standard of Christ. Thank God it's not down to us to finish that work, but the Lord himself. But as we continue to grow up, let us do so graciously with one another. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have, we have come to the, to the conclusion of one matter, only obviously next week to come to another one. But yet, Lord, there's so much here to deal with, so much that, Lord Father, that may have been stirred up in our brothers and their sisters' hearts, the Lord, wherever, wherever they are. And maybe, again, things have come to mind, you know. Hopefully not what people believe has been done to them, but, again, what they may have done to others. How they may have been a stumbling block to their own brother or sister. And I want to pray, the Lord, Father, that we'll take to heart, the Lord, the principle that's been taught here. That knowledge need not be actually pitted against love, but that we allow our knowledge to inform our love so that we are in harmony with our brother and our sister so that we um, come alongside them and allow them to mature. For those who don't, maybe who have never understood themselves as being immature, maybe they're starting to realize how immature they are and how they might actually need the help of a stronger brother a, a, or a stronger sister who actually knows better and knows more than they do, but also knows how to do that in love. Lord, help us to walk patiently with those who have decided to walk patiently with us. So, Father, we commit this to you. We want to grow up. We want to be mature. We don't want to have an immature church. But, Lord, we understand that yet because people are at different places, there will always be those who are struggling and have the danger of being left behind if we do not come alongside them. Give up our rights to live as we please and to come alongside them and, and make sacrifices for them. And not in that sense, dear Lord Father, where we're feeling like, oh man, you know, this person really owes me. Because I'm, but Lord, we really actually understand through Matthew 18 that I've been forgiven much. And so what do they owe me? 
I've been forgiven much. And it's that which motivates them. And grace flows from there, Lord God, because we know that because we have been forgiven much, we are owed nothing. So Lord, as we, we apply these things to our lives, as we try to grasp these things and, and live this principle, help us, we pray, to do so in love and in knowledge. In Jesus' name. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.